Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Today we have episode 356 on December 25th, 2023. So for those of you who celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas to everybody. For everybody else, happy holidays. And uh, I've got a very, very special episode for you today. As promised, I went back in the Wayback Machine. Cue Mr. Peabody. Hello again. Peabody here. And you're just in time to accompany Sherman and me on another journey into history. Now, that that totally dates me. If you don't get that reference, that is Mr. Peabody and his boy Sherman from the old Bullwinkle and Rocky cartoon show, which I used to love watching as a kid. But this dog, this very smart dog, had a time machine that he built where he'd take his boy Sherman back into some historical event and they'd have funny commentary on a historical event. Anyway, sorry, I just couldn't resist making the pop culture reference. But we're going into the Wayback Machine, and we're going to go all the way back to 2017, my first year of doing this podcast. And uh, I want to give you just a little bit of contextual history. So uh, for those of you who don't know, when I originally started this podcast a long time ago, I actually took over the podcast of somebody else. I was on his show, uh, which I think he called George Orwell 2084 or something like that. And uh, he he found me, invited me on a show a couple times, and then he wanted to give up a show. And the way he was on a, a network of podcasts and the way the, the contract worked with the network is if you leave your show, you need to fill your time slot. Like they actually filled up time slots on an hourly basis throughout the day. And so he had to get somebody to replace him. So I said, well, what about you? Would you like to take over my show or take over my time slot? And I'm like... <laughs> Yeah, I'd never done a podcast before. I had no clue what I was doing, but I thought, you know, sure. Why not? You know, it kind of comes with a guaranteed audience, sort of, uh, you know, this would be kind of a way to jumpstart it if I was ever going to do it. Now, the way it worked with this thing, and I'm not going to get into it too much, but you paid this person to be on their network and it was not cheap. I mean, I was still working at the time, so I could, you know, afford it more than I could now that I'm retired. But you you paid a good sum of money, and the and the idea was you'd get sponsors, and that was on you. You had to find the sponsors, and if you found the sponsors, they would pay you to be on this thing, and they would give you money, and you'd come out ahead. So you know, win win, right? <laughs> the network make the network makes money, you make money, and uh, you know, capitalism at its finest. So I did that for a little while, and I didn't really like the whole sponsor thing. I tried to get one sponsor, and it got a little money from that. But it was kind of hard to do. I didn't, I felt kind of grimy doing it. And so anyway, I ended up negotiating with them. Like, look, I don't, I don't want to do sponsors. I will just pay you money. And so uh, he kind of gave me a discounted rate for that because he wanted to keep me on the, on the, on the network. But after about a year or a little more, I was like, you know what? This is, this doesn't make sense. Everybody else who does podcasts just does it on their own. They, and there's ways to do that. I figured it out in the meantime. So I went solo and, and he graciously, the, the owner of the network, a very interesting man, a lot of credit to him for helping me get my start, uh, but I'm not going to go into it more than that. He let me go and he, you know, I did the same thing. I found a, a replacement for my, for myself and I went off on my own and I, and I have absolutely no regrets. It was completely the right call to make. So the, the reason I kind of give you that background is I want to play you a clip this is the very first episode, episode one of this podcast, and I want to I want to give you a little snippet of how it all started. And they wanted me to pick music for it, and in their defense, I did pick this music, but they kind of I gave them several options, and they really wanted something dramatic, and that's that's not me. But it, this is you know I was on this new network, I didn't know what I was doing, so I said okay, how, well let's go with this. And so 
I'm going to play you the first few minutes of the very first episode of this podcast. Hello, hello, everybody. My name is Carrie Parker, and welcome to the very, very first episode of the podcast, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And like any good podcast, I'm going to start off with a quiz. Okay, no other podcast starts with a quiz, but I'm going to start with a quiz. This is important. Pay attention. I want you to think right now, how secure are you right now with your computers, your mobile devices? How secure are you? Let's, let's, let's take a scale. Let's do a one to 10 scale. Let's say at one end of the spectrum, we have Fort Knox. That's a 10. Impenetrable. Cannot be hacked. Perfectly secure. Total privacy. That's a 10. Other end of the spectrum, wet paper bag. You have no idea. You're probably wide open. You're downloading all sorts of horrible stuff. <laughs> it's probably got viruses. You you figure you're probably screwed. Where are you on that scale? Ten to ten to one. Fort Knox, wet paper bag. Where do you think you are? Seriously, think about that right now. Try to come up with a number that makes sense. I'll give you a second. Go ahead. Now, if you're like an average everyday person. I'm going to bet that you really have no way of coming up with a meaningful number. You, you just don't know. And that's the whole point of this podcast. I am here because I'm going to help you to get more secure. Now, do you need to be as secure as Fort Knox? No, 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 no. That is not the point of this podcast. That's not where you need to be. It's all about trade-offs. Security is all about trade-offs. You need to be secure enough. So it's up to you to figure out what enough means to you. Everyone's a little bit different, but on the average, we don't need to be a 10. Maybe we need to be a five or a six, but I'm telling you, most people are nowhere near that. So I am here to help you, the average everyday person who has a mobile phone, a tablet, a computer, who's on the internet all the time, how to get yourself from a wet paper bag somewhere up in the middle to a residential home with some decent security. <laughs> all right, is it a deal? That's what we're gonna be doing here. So there you go. There's there's a look back. It, it kind of makes me cringe a little bit, honestly. Uh, certainly that music, it, it's, it's, it's way too intense. And when I went off on my own, that's when I changed the music to what I thought was much more lighthearted and neutral music uh, that you are now familiar with with, uh, with the podcast. Uh, actually, it's kind of funny as I was listening to that music, it sounds a lot like the Rick and Morty theme. If you've ever watched Rick and Morty, then uh, maybe you know what I'm talking about. But all right, let's get to the real stuff here. I went back into the first year and kind of looked back through the uh, the interviews I did in that first year of the podcast. And back then I did things differently. I kind of did the news and the interviews together. So I'd do like a little bit of a news portion. Then I'd do like half of the interview. And then the next episode, I would do a little more news and do the second half of the interview. Uh, I've changed things now, as you know, where I go back and forth week to week. But the episode I picked... Uh, was with Ladar Levison, and he started a company called LavaBit that was a secure and encrypted email service. And this was in 2004. This was in response to Google launching Gmail. And this is a full almost 10 years before ProtonMail came on the scene. This guy was really ahead of his time. And the other thing that hit me as I was listening to this interview is he sounds a lot like Phil Zimmerman. Not just in his voice, but like in the way he talks and, and the way he uh, explains things and his position on a lot of these things. It, it, the interview sounded very similar to the ones I would eventually do. This was before I ever talked to Phil with Phil Zimmerman, the creator of PGP. And so Ladar Levison, besides starting one of the very first truly encrypted end-to-end -end email services, 
is known for the fact that he shut down his service in 2013, I think it was, somewhere around the time when Edward Snowden dropped his bombshells, because Edward Snowden was one of his clients. He had a email account on LavaBit. And the FBI came knocking and said, we, we want this stuff. But they weren't even really just looking for his stuff. They were looking for everybody's account information on LavaBit. And I think the nuance of that is that for Ladar to have given up one, he would have to give up everybody. We'll talk about that in the interview, so you'll, you'll get the context there. But instead of complying, he basically nuked everything and shut down. He was so committed to the privacy of his users that he basically decided to go out of business instead of comply. Now, Lovabit has since come back. In fact, I just renewed my subscription to it. I don't really use it that much, but I have a Lovabit email. They are still around and they've got some new technology. Now, we'll get into all that in the interview. But he was very prescient. A lot of the things that we talk about in this interview and a lot of things that he thought of back when he started his service way back in 2004 are very applicable today. Now, one thing that did change uh, was me. Uh, in this interview, I lament that I think people don't care enough about privacy. I think that has absolutely changed in the six years since I did this interview. But everything else is still quite relevant and very important. So uh, without further ado, let's get to my interview. This was episode 21 back in August of 2017 with Ladar Levison of LavaBet. All right, and as promised, we are here with Ladar Levison. He serves as the founder, president, and chief executive of LavaBit. Uh, and LavaBit's a secure email service that has been around for most of the last 13 years or so. And we'll talk a little bit about what I mean by that. Uh, but uh, Ladar, thank you very much for coming. Well, thank you for having me. Fire away. All right, so uh, let's just start out with a little bit of history. Tell us, tell us about how and why you started LavaBit in the first place. Uh, so I started LavaBit in April of 2004 as a reaction to Gmail. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners will remember, but on April 1st, 2004, Google announced their Gmail project, which was at the time um, a little bit groundbreaking in the sense that it offered free one gigabyte storage quotas uh, to, for people who wanted to sign up for email. Um, and I, at the time, thought that was a great idea. Give people large storage quotas, use open source software, provide them with a free email account. But the one thing I didn't like about the Gmail announcement was the fact that they were going to be scanning people's private messages to uh, collect data and build profiles for advertising purposes. So LavaBit, what at the time was called NerdShack, uh, sort of sprung up as a reaction to it, as, you know, my effort to create the type of service that I would want to use. And it's just sort of grown from there. Now, I don't recall there being many of these. Back in 2004, I don't think many of us were really thinking about privacy much than the web. You know, it wasn't new, but... You know, a lot of us were still kind of new to the concept, and I don't think a lot of us were thinking about privacy and understanding all the tracking and things that were going on that were, you know, that were basically paying for these quote-unquote free services. Were there any, was anybody else back then thinking the way you were? So there were a lot of uh, freemium email services springing up almost on a daily basis. Um, so that was pretty common. I, I think the key is that when I first started the company, I didn't start it out with a mandate 
you know, to build an encrypted email service. I sort of fell into that over the course of the first year. I really started it out with the mindset that I wanted to create the type of service that I would want to use. And being an engineer by training, I was keenly aware of how systems work and wanted to build one that would respect my privacy. Now, if you go back to 2004, that was the year that we started learning a lot about the provisions that were in the Patriot Act. Mm. We learned about national security letters, things of that nature. And what I sort of realized over the first few months of operating this service is that um, I had sort of taken on a burden that I didn't really realize when I first started. I was now a service provider. I now had people's private information. And my fear after reading some of these articles was that I could be placed in this situation where I have to choose between going to jail and my understanding of the U.S. Constitution. And knowing myself and that I would probably pick jail in that situation, I decided to use my engineering skill to build a system that would prevent that from happening. And that was what the impetus was for creating the encryption features in the first version, first generation of LavaBit. Gotcha. Now, so fast forward a bit to 2013, and that all that that whole nightmare of yours kind of came to fruition. What what can you tell us about what happened and why LavaBit shut down back in 2013? So the system that I ended up creating over the first you know 18 months of LavaBit's existence. By the way, it was about 18 months in that we renamed it from NerdShack to LavaBit. Um, you know, at the time, there was only one other encrypted email service provider that I knew of. And they almost went out of business after cooperating with an FBI investigation. Hmm. But fast forward to 2013, and it was sort of the first instance in which um, there was a target on my system that the FBI wanted badly enough to push the boundaries of the law. And of course, that target was Edward Snowden. Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you rewind the tape to June of 2013. Um, Washington, D.C. was effectively in a panic because they didn't know what he had taken, who he had shared it with, um, and what was coming down the pipe. Um, so for them, it was the equivalent of being backed up against the wall. And, you know, they were willing at that time to break all their own rules in order to sort of learn some of those answers. Well, right. Edward Snowden was a customer, and he was one of the customers that had enabled the encryption feature. So when they came to me with a valid warrant for his data, I couldn't provide. And what they did is after spending several hours explaining to them how the system worked, um, they went back to the National Security Agency, and one of their engineers came up with the plan of taking my TLS key and using a tool that they had developed to impersonate my server on the internet, which would allow them to sort of intercept the encrypted data in transit. So they couldn't get access to the data on the server because I had engineered a solution to protect it. But what they could do is they could break open the encrypted tunnel that the user was using to connect to the service. And that's sort of what led to the litigation. It was whether or not they could take the key 
that didn't belong to Edward Snowden, but the key that belonged to LavaBit, impersonate LavaBit on the internet, thus intercepting every customer's traffic, and then in the midst of that, extract presumably only the information belonging to Edward Snowden. Right. The problem is, if you picture that, they're putting themselves in the middle. And, you know, being in that position, they could have collected anybody's information. Um, they could have modified data. In fact, by its very nature of the system that they were proposing, data was going to be modified. So it was this sort of groundbreaking sort of legal, you know, foray or, or sparring match over whether or not this could happen. Um, the problem was, you know, all of these naive sort of ideas I had at the time about our legal system never really sort of panned out. Um, you know, we're, we're taught growing up that, you know, the Fourth Amendment, the amendment that protects us from illegal search and seizure, which we sometimes naively call our right to privacy, existed. You know, everybody thinks of their Miranda rights, their right to a lawyer, uh, their right to a fair trial, their right to a full and fair hearing of the arguments, a.k.a. due process. And none of that happened in my case. And it was sort of a wake up call to how the legal system truly works. And, you know, we can get into later why that was the case, if you're interested. But yes. in sort of this abbreviated theater, you could almost call it, um, I was railroaded into being forced to turn over the key. And when I lost that sort of abbreviated sparring match, if you could call it that, I turned over the key, but shut down the system so that there would be nothing to impersonate. Wow. In other words, I realized that there was nothing I could do um, and I didn't want to be put in the position of basically operating a service um, that was going to become a government listening post. Um, it just it didn't fit with my moral ethos. So it became a very easy decision at that point um, that the best thing I could do to minimize the damage of my loss would be to shut down. Well, I'll, I'll give you a lot of credit because I don't think a lot of other people would have found it that easy. Um, that. That is a true, that's a true sticky situation. And, uh, I don't envy you being in that position. Now, just, just to be clear, you, from what I've read, you've, you had previous cases where there were individuals targeted in your system where that you'd been served with subpoenas and, and for, and you were able to process those, but this particular one was fundamentally very different. As you say, this was, this wasn't a targeted thing. This was a blanket order. Is that true? Well, so there were a handful of differences. Um, first of all, this was the first time the FBI ever showed up in person to deliver the warrant. Um, so it was a very different investigation from the start. Um, but that in entirely of itself wasn't unexpected. Um, you know, I had dealt with law enforcement before on other investigations numerous times. Um, and nothing remotely close to this had ever happened. Now, one thing to understand about my service is that there were a few design features about it. Um, I built it over time, basically from the ground up. Um, I built my own mail server that spoke all the protocols. 
So all user data was being handled by code that I had written myself. And I had this fundamental rule going into it that I wouldn't collect any information I didn't have a technical reason to have. Um, so I didn't do a lot of tracking. I didn't collect a lot of metadata. Um, you know, but ultimately, the most important data that I had were users' individual emails. And that was where the encryption feature came in. Now, when I finished building this encryption feature, I it sort of dawned on me the power of it. Um, by that point, I had been operating the service for about a year. Um, I think I had probably already dealt numerous abuse situations. I don't know if I had dealt with law enforcement at that point, I, I don't recall, but I sort of understood what I was creating. And the bargain I made with myself was that at the time I would limit it to only my paid customers. With the thinking being that if a user ever activated this feature and then used it for something nefarious, um, I would be able to turn over their payment details and they could go directly to the user to get the data. Gotcha. Um, you know, my goal was never to end surveillance. It was to shift the focus of surveillance from service providers back onto individual suspects. And that, to this day, sort of remains my goal. Um, you know, we're, we're, regardless of what I do, over the next 10 to 15 years, we are going to be transitioning out of what I've been calling the golden era of surveillance, when data passed freely and unprotected across open networks. And that has been slowly changing, and it's been getting harder and harder um, for intelligence agencies to collect what they want. You know, they're, they're exiting a world in which they could get everything to a world in which it's getting harder to collect anything into a world that I hope we return to, which requires them to sort of exert effort for each individual that they choose to target. When surveillance is easy, um, you know, if you watch Citizen Four, there's a great clip of me explaining this, but when su surveillance is easy, um, the state tends to overuse it. Um, by making surveillance more difficult through technology such as end-to-end -end encryption, we're going to force them to return to a world in which they have to be more targeted in who they look at. And the hope is that the natural byproduct of that is they tend to mostly target people that are legitimately criminals. So in a recent tweet, uh, you said, and I quote, the fight for privacy rights is the issue of our generation. 50 years from now, the tens in privacy will be like the 60s and civil rights. I think that was well said, but explain to the audience, why is privacy so important? And I don't mean, you know, protect things from my wife or or something like that. I'm talking about from a from a democratic standpoint, from a human rights from standpoint, why is privacy so important? Well, I mean, if you go back to the 60s, there were demonstrations in the streets over whether or not segregation was the right way to proceed as a society. Um, it was the debate about right and wrong when it came to civil rights. And it's something that my generation takes for granted, that all people are created equal regardless of race or creed. Um, 
but back in the 60s, that wasn't the case. And my fear is that whatever comes out of this debate 50 years from now, our grandchildren won't question whatever is the accepted norm. They won't remember a time when there was a presumption of privacy when you were in public or operating with an electronic device. And that's my fear. Um, you know, I could go back even further to another example that wouldn't fit in 140 characters. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, at the beginning of our union, there was this debate between loose constructionists and strict constructionists over the extent of authority the federal government possessed. And it was settled in over time in a series of amendments and Supreme Court cases, but effectively the loose constructionists won. And the result of that is that we take for granted 200 years later that the federal government can dictate whatever they want to individual states. Um, and that's sort of created this system now where we have this massive federal government. But the result, the point I'm trying to make is that nobody considers a world in which the federal government doesn't have that authority. You know, if you look to the European Union as a corollary, they're going through a similar transition where the European Union, which started out as a loose union of loosely aligned individual states, is quickly becoming a cohesive country with a shared set of laws, values, and regulations. And, you know, if you look to Brexit, that's part of Brexit is their sort of receding from that uh, trend. Um, but here in the United States, we don't even have that debate anymore, unless you're in California, which always threatens to secede. But, <laughs> you, know, you know, the rest of the country, um, th that was a, a post-Trump thing, right? There was a big threat for California, Oregon, and Washington would secede from the union. Right. Well, of you course, know, Texas I'm, I'm has been talking about that for a long time. I too. was going to say, I'm I'm here and living in Texas, and they they like to talk about the clause in their constitution, the state constitution that allows them to secede as well. Although I don't haven't heard too much actual talk of it lately, but you know it's 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 taken for granted. And my fear is that we're really settling the debate right now about how much authority a government should have when it comes to invading our privacy. And 50 years from now, whatever is decided won't be questioned. So here's the one difference I see, I think, with the analogy and where it is that from what I can tell, people don't seem to believe that privacy is important. They don't believe that this is a right that they need to exercise. In fact, many people, at least from their actions, seem to be willing to just willingly give that up. It's 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 not you know, it's not a certain segment of population. It's the entire population that, that is affected by this. It's a, and nevertheless, so few people seem to care. Why? Why do you think that is? So this comes down to basic human psychology. Um, people who are preoccupied with food and shelter are only going to worry about food and shelter. People who have that taken care of suddenly have the energy and thought 
to worry about other issues, moral issues, right and wrong, uh, following laws, things of that nature. Um, we're living in a world where people are so busy with so many different things that it's hard to get them to care about any individual issue that doesn't affect them personally. That doesn't mean they don't care. That doesn't mean they don't have an opinion. But it does mean that it's hard to get people motivated to march in the streets over any particular topic. I think Edward Snowden put it best, um, and I, hopefully I don't butcher this quote, but I think he said, people that uh, don't believe in the right to privacy uh, don't defend the right to privacy because they don't have anything to hide. It, it's, it's similar to saying, I'm not going to defend the right to free speech because I have nothing to say. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good para paraphrase of what he said, and it's, it's entirely true. Um, it was an issue that I cared about. And have always cared about. I have a degree in political, I have a few degrees, but one of them happens to be in political science. Um, so I have an innate understanding of the origin and boundaries of our various rights as they've evolved over the last 220 years. Um, and for me, I truly understand the importance of the right to privacy um, because I remember or I shouldn't say I remember, I'm not quite that old, um, <laughs> although sometimes I feel like it. Um, but the, the British soldiers invading houses in search of um, revolutionary, revolutionary sympathizers. You know, I remember reading about the Star Chamber and its secret hearings. So I understand the origin and the purpose of our Bill of Rights and their role in protecting our freedom. And to me, that makes my own personal choices with regard to protecting those um, sort of very strongly held beliefs, the types of beliefs that I'm willing to defend if ever challenged. But at the same time, they're not the types of things that I go march in the street over. I prefer to enforce my views on my world and make a difference in the areas that I can control. And one of the areas that I happen to have control over is my service. And it was only when those two areas came into conflict that there was ever really an issue. And I'm just fortunate that I made the right one because it wasn't clear at the time what the right decision was. Yeah. So generally speaking, what authority do law enforcement agencies have with respect to demanding uh, user metadata or user communications, and more importantly, maybe, where does, where does that authority come from, or where do they claim that authority comes from? So it's sort of evolved over, you know, a, a long history um, through a large number of cases. Um, but unfortunately, when technologies were primitive, it was very easy to make certain decisions, which over time, have evolved into sort of creating very serious consequences. Um, but one of those cases sort of made the presumption that the Fourth Amendment, what we kind of naively think is our right to privacy, that its protection ends at the home. So when you store stuff outside of your home, 
the Fourth Amendment no longer applies. Mm. And with the introduction of electronic communications, going back to the telegraph, you know, a hundred years ago, um, that sort of thinking has evolved to where anything that you store electronically on a service provider isn't protected from search and seizure by the government. Now, for me, the biggest problem and the easiest solution is that there is no requirement under U.S. law to notify someone that they've been secretly placed under surveillance. There are other countries that do have such requirements. And I, I actually believe that one of the easiest things we could do in the short term to sort of change the course of history would be to pass such a requirement that within 12 to 24 months, uh, law enforcement would be required to notify somebody if uh, their data had been searched. I think the easier um, sort of rule to get passed or codified into law um, and could be done through the courts, not necessarily through Congress, would be at, at the very least allowing service providers to notify customers when data has been turned over after a certain period of time, regardless of what law enforcement wants. Because the way the law is written now, we've sort of gone into a world over the last 10 to 12 years, really since 9-11, um, you know, probably starting in about 2002, where investigations that used to be opened up to public scrutiny after a fixed period of time now remain secret indefinitely. And what this means from a service provider perspective is that when we get search warrants and subpoenas for user information, they're written such that we're not allowed to disclose them to anybody who does not have a technological reason to know about the order and or is not a lawyer providing us with counsel. So what this really means is even at a company as large as Gmail, um, you know, the Google CEO may not even know about a particular surveillance order. Hmm. Only a handful of lawyers and engineers would know, which makes it very easy for the spokesperson to conveniently deny cooperation because they legitimately have no idea. Plausible deniability. Now, I've engineered our systems because I'm, you know, a probably a little bit farther down the paranoid scale than most people <laughs> where, you know, I have a technological reason to know that trumps anything else. You know, there was no way the FBI could get what they wanted without my help. So... The crux of the matter and the, and the argument that is always brought up in these cases is, you know, the classic terrorism case or someone's going to die if we don't get this information. There is a, yeah, I mean, the classic test that I use is, is there, there's a suitcase sized nuclear weapon somewhere in New York City and your service holds the information as to where it's located. So how do we, how do we balance the need? How do we balance the need for privacy, and I think we've demonstrated that, against the need of law enforcement to fight crime and terrorism, in particular, 
with respect to the Fourth Amendment, if I have, and because encryption and a lot of these end-to-end encryption services, when done properly, basically takes you out of the equation. There's nothing you can do um, because the math is solid. As long as the implementation is solid, there's really nothing you as a provider could do at that point to provide these communications. And yet, with with you know throughout history, the way that has worked is you know you you get a valid warrant from a judge. And you have a very limited scope, but a legal right that law enforcement does to to go to places they would not normally be able to go to. But encryption, if done well, doesn't even allow that. So is there any way, technologically, a backdoor obviously doesn't work, master keys don't work. Hopefully everybody will figure that out in, in Congress. But is there any way, technologically, that we could somehow honor the Fourth Amendment where we could protect most communications all communications until and if we are served a valid warrant, in which case we could only open up particular communications, perhaps bound by time, bound by who's involved, that sort of thing. So, I mean, there, there are a few things there. I think the first point to make is part of the reason we're in the situation today is because the third branch of government hasn't been doing their job properly. It's the duty of the courts to remain adversarial with the executive branch and limit their power. And unfortunately, what we've evolved to is a world where the courts and judges in particular no longer give every order the proper scrutiny. Law enforcement is given the benefit of the doubt. And they take advantage of that fact quite liberally in high profile cases. You know, it's most people don't realize this, but more than two thirds of the judges currently sitting on the federal bench um, were at one time prosecutors. Hmm. You know, they're predisposed to favor the state and to favor law enforcement. Is that a modern phenomenon or is that common? I don't know how It's certainly a a modern thing. I don't know how far back it goes, but I would venture to presume that, you know, if you look at the first 100 to 150 years, it probably was not that way. But it's not a straight comparison because, you know, when this country was founded, lawyers didn't really exist in the way that they exist today. You know, citizens were expected to have an understanding of the law and to be able to argue it for themselves. And it was sort of over time that we developed this more complicated legal theory um, and had to train individuals to act as representatives. And it sort of stemmed from the fact that, you know, people who were uneducated would get dragged into court and be forced to defend themselves. But it's also why we have this strong pro se tradition in our own legal system where people can defend themselves and many do. Uh, but speaking from experience, I, I can certainly attest that the legal system is no longer friendly to the individual defendant in terms of procedures and understanding um, the way it probably was 200 years ago. So we've seen in the UK with the with the quote unquote snoopers charter, and and we're getting we're seeing mm-hmm. rumble, rumblings now in Australia of similar of similar sort of uh, talk. Even in the US, we've seen this too, but. The point I like to I'd like to make uh, is there's 
you can't outlaw encryption. It's just math. <laughs> and it's like trying to outlaw algebra and, and the code is already out there. Is there any point? What, what do you see for the future of these kind of things? Why is it that politicians can continually seem to believe that they can do this? So it's kind of the third time today that I've received a variation of that question. <laughs> um, and we talked about it initially in this interview about how we're sort of settling this issue. Well, the UK has started to come down on the other side of the equation, and Australia is in danger of doing the same. Now, these are two countries that historically have very, very strong surveillance traditions. So for them, um, a mandate to break into any communication isn't sort of perceived the same way as it is here, for example, in the US. Um, but when looking at this in a historical context, I think one of the things to look at is the relationship between the populace and its government. Because populations that have historically um, never seen a tradition of, of widespread abuse by their own government, um, they tend to be a little bit lazier when it comes to protesting an increase in state authority. Whereas countries that are on the opposite end of the spectrum uh, tend to be more uh, vigilant when it comes to acting as a check on their government's uh, overreach. And a great example of this is Germany. Um, you know, Germany has a very real history with the Stasi yes. and their methods and tactics. And there are still people alive that remember what it was like to live under those regimes. Uh, Russia has the same. So for their citizenry, the idea of an overreaching um, autocrat is a very real threat. Whereas if you look at the UK, you know, they've always had a very love-hate relationship with government, but never sort of the open revolt that would cause them to distrust or sort of worry about a totalitarian dictator assuming authority. Um, the U.S. is somewhere in between when it comes to that. You know, we've had since our revolution, um, you know, almost 220 years now, a pretty strong tradition of a vibrant democracy. Uh, it isn't since maybe the Nixon administration that we've seen these sort of evolution of what some people are calling the imperial presidency. Mm. And, you know, Trump is just another extension of that. But, you know, every successive president since Nixon has really, in one way or another, dramatically increased the authority of the executive. And it's usually been with the tacit approval of Congress. Um, you know, assigning authority to regulatory bodies instead of defining the rules themselves, things of that nature. Um, but we're entering this world where, you know, the president now and his lieutenants have a very dangerous level of authority with very little check um, against it. Uh, so but we don't necessarily have the history of abuse that causes us to be concerned with that. 
in the way, you know, for example, the German citizenry. Right. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how things evolve. I don't think certainly in the short term we will enter a world where law enforcement will be granted that authority. Uh, of course, dramatic events can lead to dramatic changes. Just like 9-11 led to the first sort of overreach in government surveillance powers. Um, you know, the National Security Agency was started with the mandate, never again. And that's a reference to Pearl Harbor. When 9-11 happened, they left that feeling like they had failed their mission. When in reality, their mission was to stop a, a surprise attack from another state, not a surprise attack from a handful of rogue citizens or, or tourists in this case. Right. Um, but what it caused is them to shift their focus from state surveillance to citizen surveillance. Now, what that means in sort of tactical terms is since 9-11, we've seen sort of this dramatic refocusing of tools and techniques that were originally developed to spy on agencies like the KGB suddenly being used against individuals. And I don't know if as a society we've really sort of accepted, understood, or put the proper protections in place for that kind of a world. And I fear that by the time we understand it, it'll be too late to debate it. Yeah. Well, fear is a powerful motivator and a powerful political tool. But to answer your original premise, which is, you know, the hypothetical of, you know, a nuclear threat somewhere in this country, you know, we invest billions, close to trillions of dollars per year um, to protect our country against such threats through a number of different means. New York City is one of these cities that has invested millions of dollars in placing um, detectors that are supposed to pick up radiological signatures as they travel around the city. Um, you know, we tightly control travel and the transport of the types of materials that would be used for such a weapon. I think we have a lot of things in place that could and should protect us to a reasonable degree that hopefully we never need to go to a point where every communication by default must be opened by some central authority. Um, I just think that goes past a certain point because ultimately um, words and communications aren't the thing that hurt people, it's actions. And we should be basing our actions on other people's actions and not their words. So what I mean by this is that we shouldn't be mining mass data and metadata to make surveillance targets. We should be doing it the old fashioned way with boots on the ground. And when you do that, you have a lot more context in terms of making decisions and a lot more ways of conducting surveillance. For example, you know, putting um, microphones in the ceiling fan to listen to people's conversations. So maybe you can't intercept the telephone call, but you can listen to it 
uh, through some other external device. The problem is that's hard and is only going to be authorized in a situation where there's a preponderance of evidence that this person is up to no good. Right. You know, if you look at the late 90s with the end of the Cold War, um, there has been a dramatic shift since then in our state security apparatus in terms of resources allocated. And most of them have been shifted away from what's referred to as human or human intelligence towards SIGINT or signals intelligence. And what that's sort of resulted in is an, the atrophy of our intelligence agencies being able to sort of conduct old-fashioned surveillance with individuals. We've gotten so reliant on listening to people's cell phone calls and intercepting text messages and emails um, that we don't bother developing agents capable of infiltrating ISIS, for example, right. in the same way that we developed agents during the Cold War to infiltrate Russia. Um, and what's happened is we're somewhat rapidly over the last eight to 10 years seeing terrorist organizations through trial and error realize that they can't rely on electronic means for communications and that's causing us to go blind. I can put this in very real Milleristic terms. Um, you know, if we look to the Obama administration, you know, in the early days of ISIS, there were a group of individuals inside the government that wanted to disrupt the communications network, the cellular network, the internet access, um, the plain old telephone system inside ISIS controlled territories, which would make it difficult for them to communicate using anything stronger than a walkie talkie. You know, we can block sat phones. We already have the assets in the air for monitoring. Those same aircraft are more than capable of jamming such communications. And groups like that don't have the resources to, to develop mil-spec communication systems that can cut through such interference. They're using consumer off-the-shelf cell phones and walkie-talkies and radios and, and sat phones. If we had disrupted that communications network, do you really think ISIS could have controlled such a large area of territory for as long as they did? I tend to think the answer is no. But the argument against doing such a thing was that if we disrupted those communications networks, we would lose the little bit of visibility into their operations that we had because we didn't have human assets on the ground that could provide us information about movement and things of that nature. Hmm. So there was a conscious decision at the highest levels of government not to take such an action. And it, it really stems, stems from politics and money. You know, how could the director of the NSA justify his budget when a conflict breaks out, he's not able to provide any intelligence. So let's, let's circle back and, and kind of come back to secure communications again. So why isn't email secure today? Uh, is secure email an oxymoron? I think security, the word itself, has become somewhat of a marketing term. 
um, because you really have to define security in terms of secure from whom. Hmm. Yep. Now, if we're talking about encrypted email, one of the biggest barriers to entry is that all of the traditional tools sort of tend to talk about absolute security and protection from everyone, including, you know, yourself. And as a result, they tend to make things very manual because there's this sort of fundamental law that the more automated you make a system, the more difficult it is to protect it. When an attacker knows the rules for validation, they also know what they need to do in order to circumvent it, which has made, of course, my job difficult. You know, I'm trying to develop a system for automate the automated encryption of emails across organizational boundaries. And part of the reason I couldn't use PGP out of the box is that it doesn't have the features built into it to facilitate you know, the automated key exchange securely. And for, for the listeners, PGP is pretty good privacy, which has been the gold standard for encrypted communications for a long, long time, but it's never been adopted just because it's so, so cumbersome for most people to use. Well, I mean, one of the other things to know about PGP, and, you know, Phil told me this himself, it was never created specifically for email. It's a general purpose encryption tool that I think will remain well into the future. It just so happened that email was the easiest way to transport data protected using PGP. Mm. All right. So how do we protect users from themselves? (laughs) Aren't people truly the weakest link in this whole system? So, yes. You know, when I set out to create dark mail, I had to set a number of goals. And they evolved after extensive feedback. Um, But it was that feedback that led me down a road um, different from PGP, which was the original plan. But what I've tried to do with dark mail is design a system that leaves, that boils security down to the complexity of a user's password and the strength of an endpoint's defenses. Because my theory is that at least that gives people a fighting chance. But you're correct. You know, I can't protect everybody all the time. What I can do is develop tools that lead to good habits. And that's a very tricky art. Yes. But uh, let me put it a different way. (laughs) It's a, a sort of ideological debate that I get into frequently, but there are a lot of other good cryptographers out there, uh, particularly in this day and age when cryptography has come into vogue. Unfortunately, most of them are not also information security experts because to an information security expert, encryption is only one tool in a rather large quiver. It happens to be a very important arrow, but it is not the only one we have at our disposal. And when you talk about information security, it really is the sort of art of creating systems that lead to good habits. Right. All right. So in your opinion, who should be using secure email and secure messaging services in general? Is this, should everybody use this or is there just people that quote unquote, need it? Are there 
yeah, do we all need Snowden level protection, for example? So for someone like Snowden, their life depends on being able to communicate privately and the life of their associates. And for a number of people in other countries, that case remains the same. Because in some countries, um, political opposition can lead to your arrest and dismemberment. For us as U.S. citizens, you know, we certainly have an increasing number of very real threats. Very few of them tend to involve life and death, but a lot of them involve um, sort of financial safety, the security of our identities, our assets, things of that nature. So yes, everybody should use encryption because they don't want to be, you know, it's the low-hanging fruit anecdote. Or to put another way, when you're walking in the forest with a friend and you see a bear, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to (laughs) outrun the person standing next to you. Yes, I make that analogy all the time. So if anybody has any questions about whether or not they should be using encryption, just think of the bear. (laughs) Um, You don't want to be the guy that finds out his lunch was eaten by somebody else because he wasn't communicating securely. (laughs) And unfortunately, that's what's happening on an almost daily basis. You know, I'm sure Hillary Clinton and John Podesta didn't think much about email encryption until after the most recent election. Right. Uh, same with Sony Pictures. Yeah. Um, there have been a number, and it's a gro- ever-growing list, of high-profile breaches in the last year or two um, that are just reminders of how important email is in terms of online communication and what it holds, and it needs to be protected. Well, and the, and the other thing I, you know, two, two points that I, like quickly that I is first of all the internet is forever so it's one thing to say that I don't want to encrypt it now if you if if you you can't go back and encrypt it later and it's out there and it's going to remain out there on some server whether it's you know a google server or some hard drive in the NSA's Utah facility forever and if some you know we all say things that we might regret later and if if they want to and you know if someone were to comb through every email communication you ever made could they find something to you know, maybe pursue, I think they could. So point one, point two, and you basically made this earlier is that there's a big difference between targeted surveillance and mass surveillance. And for me, uh, encrypted end to end communications and, and it, you know, emails and messaging and, and such by adopting that widespread, everybody without, without exception, what we're basically doing is we're, we're forcing things to go back to the way things used to be, as you said before earlier. And that is, take away the easy button the, the, you know, we should not be allowing through our laziness, the ability to do mass surveillance sitting behind a desk in, in some facility, you know, in the middle of Utah, we, you know, we, back in the day, they actually had to do some gumshoe work. They had, they had some, some shoe leather work. They had to get out there and, and, you know, and spend some time, spend some money, risk some resources to actually target just the few people that they felt were, you know, were really worthy of surveillance. And, and unlike today, where it's, it's until, and if we get to the point where we encrypt everything, mass surveillance is just too easy. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it a hundred years ago, there was no FBI as we think about it today. So let's all right. Let's come full circle. Let's go all the way back to Lava Bit Act Two. So you you have since 
relaunched LavaBit, and I believe it was January 20th of 2017. Is there any any significance to that date? I just thought it was a good day to roll out and begin testing the new service. You know, this relaunch is going to be a long road. We still have a lot of pieces yet to build, yet to roll out. And, you know, we've been trying to open it up slowly as things are ready. And what we did on, on January 20th is we brought the system back online for pre-existing customers so that we could begin uh, testing some of the updates we've made to the system over the last couple of years. Um, and we, we started doing pre-sales. And of course, on July 4th, we started allowing some of those pre-sale customers to start using the service in what we call trustful mode. Uh, we've been developing end-to-end clients uh, we just don't feel like they're ready for people to put their lives on. So how is this service different than the original LavaBit service, if any? Is it the same service, or are there improvements or changes you've made since the first time around? So the long-term goal of this service is to put is to give you options for how to control um, your private encryption key. The first generation of the service required the server to have access to it. Um, this new service doesn't have that requirement anymore. Um, the difficulty is that we need to build tools that allow you to assert that control. And it's those tools that we're continuing to work on. Internally, this server has been designed to operate in sort of a split mode where it no longer has access to people's email. The problem is you need to be a programmer in order to take advantage of that. Is LavaBit in any way compatible with existing email services? If I want, if I've got a LavaBit account and I want to talk to somebody on Gmail account, how does how does that work? Certainly, the way it's designed is it will use the most secure method of communication available. So, if Gmail begins supporting dark mail, your messages will travel encrypted end to end. If the other service only supports transport encryption which tends to be the de facto standard in the industry today, then that's what it'll use. And when we roll out this next generation of clients, one of the key features about it is that it will tell you when you type in somebody's email address, what level of security you're going to get before you compose the message. Awesome. That's fantastic. So if people want to sign up for this service now, and you say it's rolling out and you're starting to open it up, is it open up to everybody yet? And if not, when will that day come? When do, you, do you have an idea when that might be? So we opened it up to new users on July 4th. They'll have to use a legacy client like Outlook or Thunderbird or something of that nature in order to access the current service. But yeah, it's opened up. And you know, one of the fundamental changes about this new relaunch service and the old one is encryption is now the new default. You know, one of the things I learned... Um, you know, through my experiences in 2013 is that uh, I, I can no longer in good faith operate a service where I store plain text data for people. Um, so, you know, in contrast to the old system where you had to activate the, the feature, it's now the new default and everybody's data is protected by, de- by default, coupled with we've done some stuff on the back end to sort of protect us against the type of attack that occurred in 2013. Uh, We now embed our TLS keys um, in hardware so that we don't have access to them. 
So if the feds were to come knocking today, it would be a different story. Yeah, it doesn't mean they don't have another creative way of breaking through this security. You know, ultimately, we need to get to a world where users assert the level of control that they're comfortable with. You know, for some users, that might be trustful mode. For others, it might be what we call cautious mode. And for others, it might be paranoid mode. And we'll have to save descriptions of those three different modes for our next podcast. <laughs> so I've got to ask, because I'm sure the listeners are thinking this. So let's say that, you know, some of the audience is thinking, well, that, that would be pretty cool. I'd like to have some secure email, some kick butt secure email. But if I sign up for this service, am I going to be attracting unwanted attention from intelligence agencies? I certainly don't think so. Um, I mean, we're really sort of entering a world where encryption is quickly becoming the default. Maybe we're not 100% there yet. Maybe, you know, signing up for this service in conjunction with a number of other factors like using Tor and uh, owning a black phone might get you a second look. Mm -hmm. um, but I like to hope, um, you know, I have 400,000 users. 99.999% um, of them are honest, upstanding individuals. So, all right. So if, if folks in my audience wanted to learn more about protecting their privacy and securing their devices, other than LavaBit, uh, if they just want to do some learning, if they want to make it look, or maybe look at other types of products in this kind of realm, uh, what resources do you personally recommend? Are there websites, books, documentaries, things like that? I try to stay out of that game. Um, <laughs> You know, it's such a complicated topic that needs to be personalized that it's hard for me to give a carte blanche recommendation for anybody. And that was sort of one of the realizations I made when I first started out with Darkmail, is that one solution isn't going to be best for everybody. It really depends on an individual's threat model and who you're trying to protect your data from. So just as a last question, as, as we go out, if, and I always like to give the audience some options, what, if people have, have drunk the Kool-Aid, they believe now that privacy is important. And by the way, if you haven't already, go watch Glenn Greenwald's TED Talk on privacy. It's fantastic. And if you're not convinced, that should do it. What would you recommend people do if they want to get involved? If they want to make a, you know, I don't know if they want to make a statement, maybe that's a strong way to put it. But if they, if they want to take charge of this, if they want to kind of forward this agenda, uh, of privacy being important, what would you recommend they do? I mean, I think if you want to become an expert, you have to work with the tools directly and you have to look at the code that powers them so that you understand how they work. Because when you get to a point where you can contribute improvements to that code, then you probably understand it well enough to trust it. I think it's we're entering a world where it's hard to take anything off the shelf in a closed black box and assume it works the way people say it does. Um, because even if it does work that way, it isn't it until you have a deep understanding of how it works that you can make effective decisions about how to use it. So for somebody who's not technically involved, for somebody who's not a software engineer like the two of us, what would... Yeah, I mean, if you're not a software engineer, you're in a, in a very dangerous place because now you have to trust the recommendations of others. And that is why I try and stay away from making carte blanche recommendations because 
a recommendation that's well suited for one individual may not be for another. Absolutely. All right. Well, Ladar, thank you very much for the, the talk. It was very interesting talking to you today. Um, any parting words for the audience before we take off? Good luck and God bless. <laughs> Fair enough. And back at you. Thank you very much for talking to us. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I think it really holds up and stands the test of time. Uh, it was very interesting for me to go back and listen to that. I hope you enjoyed that as well. So if you didn't pick up on it, I asked him about why he relaunched LavaBit on, I guess it was January 20th or so in 2017. And if you haven't picked up on that, that was the inauguration day for uh, former President Donald Trump. So I don't think that was coincidental. Okay, so real quick before we go, next week will be the best of 2023 bonus episode. That is all the stuff that I normally only do for my patrons. I went through and pulled out some of the best clips from the bonus patron only podcast. So that will be new for most of you. I hope you enjoy that and it'll give you a little taste of the kind of stuff that I collect from my patrons for the bonus podcast. So that'll be next week. So the week after that, we will be doing my really fun interview with Nick Weaver based on a uh, presentation he did called Dr. Strange Drone or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Slaughterbots, which, of course, is a take on Dr. Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, the classic Peter Sellers movie uh, from back in the 70s, I think. So we talk about drones and autonomy and using AI to kill people. <laughs> so that's a very interesting interview, and that'll be coming up soon. So a lot of other great stuff on the horizon coming up in 2024. If you haven't already, now would be a great time to subscribe, and that way you won't miss anything. So that'll wrap it up for this week, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope everybody has a happy and safe and relaxing holiday season, and uh, have fun on New Year's Eve. Think about those New Year's resolutions. I'll have some ideas for you coming up next year. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there, and until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.